Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 10th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including MoviePass, uh, Colin Trevorrow's Star Wars Episode Nine pitch, the possibility of romance in that film, Christian Bale's thoughts on Terminator Salvation, Black Panther advanced ticket sales, and In the Spoiler Room. We'll talk about some surprising Westworld casting, as well as uh, we'll we'll have more conversation on Ray's heritage uh, from Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Uh, but we'll give you a heads up on the spoilers there. Uh, this is Peter Strada, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film writer Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. Uh, so let's just get into it, guys. Uh, I I know we've been talking about Movie Pass uh, for a while now. I know. Uh, people are either very interested in this or probably ty- getting tired of us talking about MoviePass. Um, but, uh, you know, pe- the whole industry is kind of trying to figure out how they're going to make money on the service that, you know, is basically nine ninety nine a month and uh, lets you see, you know, up- upwards of 30 movies a month. Uh, so, Ben, we're starting to get a peek behind the curtain of what what's going on here. What, what do we know? Yes. So recently, MoviePass reached uh, 1.5 million subscribers with 500,000 of those coming in the last month alone. So that's a pretty impressive statistic for uh, for MoviePass and their subscriber numbers there. Um, last month, we talked about how MoviePass had signed a marketing and distribution deal with a mysterious independent movie distribution company. And we were wondering what that would be and who that was and what's going on. So there is a uh, an email that went out from MoviePass to its members that basically announces this partnership between MoviePass and I, Tanya, the new movie from Neon, which is the distribution company that was co-founded by Alamo Drafthouse head Tim League. So Neon was formed uh, early last year. They released movies like Ingrid Goes West and Colossal last year. They're also responsible for I, Tanya. So the, uh, I guess this email that MoviePass sent out, basically they're sending this, this uh, offer out to their members that says, hey, if you go see I, Tanya in theaters uh, sometime in the next few days, we're going to automatically enter you into a contest to win 10 annual MoviePass subscriptions. So this is the first time that we've seen 
uh, a MoviePass ad being sort of broadcast, sent out to their membership on this level before. Um, and it, it seems like that independent movie distribution company that was rumored to, or, you know, that was a... Uh, that was all mystery and, and uh, you know, <laughs> veiled in shadow last month is it probably neon. I reached out to MoviePass to see if they had any sort of official statement on that. Haven't heard back yet, so I'll keep you guys updated. But um, You haven't heard back from MoviePass? What a I shock. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> I know so uh, many people, by the way, that have tried to contact MoviePass's customer service and have, you know, gotten nowhere or, you know, are communicating with customer service reps and it's like, you know, uh, uh, tra- you know, three times translated uh doesn't make sense uh of responses so they, i just wanted to mention that they have the worst customer service yeah so um so yeah this is the first time you know peter you mentioned in the beginning of this and sort of the setup is like what you know the industry is wondering how movie pass is going to remain a, like a viable company basically and this advertising uh aspect is part of the way that they're going to make money at least in the short term until they gather enough subscribers to sell the information to um you know other advertisers and things like that so they they have all sorts of long-term plans but i'm looking at this as sort of like the next phase for movie pass and now that they've finally uh sent out this first you know big email blast that that directly ties them to a movie that's in theaters now actively trying to convince their membership to go see it um, this seems like uh, the next step in their process. I just wonder what kind of effect this will have on the box office because, you know, uh, you know, they're basically pushing people to go see this movie in a one week period. And uh, they're basically giving away like, uh, you know, product worth like $800. Um, and I'm sure Neon's paying quite a penny to, you know, for this test trial. But uh, it'll be interesting to see this next week at the box office if, you can see a sizable spike just from you know movie passes 1.5 million uh, 1.5 million subscribers yeah and we talked about that um i think it was last month as well like they they have released these numbers you know they crunched a bunch of data and figured out that um movie pass themselves are like directly responsible for you know 10% of certain movies opening weekend grosses so they definitely have a proven track record when it comes to improving a movie's performance at the box office so we'll see if that happens with Itania this week okay let's talk a little bit about Star Wars uh Colin Trevorrow's uh Star Wars episode 9 we will never see it uh obviously he's been replaced on the project by JJ Abrams but HT you wrote up this article apparently he pitched Daisy Ridley an idea for episode nine and it brought Daisy Ridley to tears. Yeah. So that's the extent of it actually, because this story is told through a very long grapevine. It's essentially uh, Saturday night live cast member. Bobby Moynihan is telling this story and he was at an SNL after party with uh, Daisy Ridley and Colin Trevorrow, where I think the two of them first met And uh, apparently he saw uh, Colin Trevorrow and Daisy Ridley go into a corner and Colin was giving Daisy his pitch for Star Wars Episode Nine, And Bobby Moynihan couldn't catch what the pitch actually was, but it was something that was so emotional that it moved Daisy Ridley to tears. Whether it was tears of joy over its poignancy (laughs) or horror over how awful it was, we'll never know because this is a a pitch that will probably be kept under tight lid by Disney um, in their vaults for years to come until we see a tell-all book or maybe a 
I don't know, a, a booklet of some sort that goes in like a special edition of episode nine 20 years from now. Now, I know you guys like to give jabs at Colin Trevorrow, but uh, the, the likelihood of it being so, so horrible that it brought her to tears uh, sounds unlikely. <laughs> I know, I joke. <laughs> um, but it's it's actually interesting because, you know, so many people didn't want Colin to do this third film and coming off Last Jedi, I've actually been seeing a lot of people on Twitter kind of um, – it seems like people have turned on J.J. Abrams. Um, and it seems like people are like – they. I'm seeing tweets of like people would have rather seen what Colin would, would have done because it might have been different where J.J. Abrams will probably be you know more in line with what Force Awakens was. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 have you guys had any – like what, what do you – what do you think could possibly bring Daisy Ridley – to tears uh, but uh, you know story-wise for a third installment i mean it's obviously something that's not going to happen anymore because jj is doing it uh but do you, either of you have any uh any uh, uh elevator pitches for me god i certainly don't ht do you have anything uh saved in the bank there um not anything specific i'm <laughs> guessing it might have something to do with perhaps leia's arc and how he tells her or like brings about an end oh, to her arc or storyline or something that's a good point too because uh carrie fisher was still alive at that point probably yeah it was because um leia was supposed to have a huge substantial role in colin trevorrow's um original pitch or vision of, of episode nine so i'm guessing that the movie had a lot to do with her but you know since her tragic passing uh that vision probably would would not work at all just logistically and uh, plot-wise as well. A very good call. I didn't even think about that. Um, but this isn't the last Star Wars story we have today. We have a couple of something in the spoilers. Uh, but right now, uh, I want to talk about Ray and the the possible her her possible romance future. Ht, it, it, like, is she going to? Uh, is there love in the air between her and Poe or Finn? All right. <laughs> so I know I'm one of the very few people who saw a very powerful spark between Rey and Poe in their brief meeting at the end of Star Wars Last Jedi. But I am a shipper and I was very anti-Rey Kylo Ren. So I'm just kind of holding on to this, like the tiny threads of this one interaction that they have. And so basically when they meet in Last Jedi, um, this is going to be a little spoilers for Last Jedi. It's the first time that they meet in the franchise. And when they introduce each other, um, she says, I'm Ray. And he says, I know. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is what causes, I'm, I'm going to interpret this as a blush because she smiles really happily. But I really like that there's some vague parallels between the I know line between Han and Leia. So that was something that sort of got my... <laughs> Got my brain working. With, I, I, I would what... argue that she's blushing because, she, you know, she has grown up as a no one on Jakku, never thought she'd be anyone. And now people are hearing the story of her. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. But also Oscar Isaac is incredibly charming. <laughs> so you can't really fault her if she does blush a little bit in front of him. Um, so uh, there are a lot of people who are sort of um, getting on board with this really brief interaction in this ship, as they call it. And um, Daisy Ridley was posed a question about this, and which she responded very diplomatically. Um, it's wonderful to have relationships that are not romantic. I don't think in films you always need a romantic relationship. Uh, hope 
et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully, if Ray and Poe get to have some scenes together, there'll be intimacy. But for me, it doesn't have to be a romantic love. So I think she is kind of balking at the fact that she's the one female lead of this movie franchise. And she, of course, is being asked all the questions about her love interest, which I know is very infuriating. <laughs> and I think my own like sort of feminist uh beliefs are in contrast with my own shipping sort of mentality but <laughs> I agree with her to an extent I think that maybe um I romance has always been the weakest part of the Star Wars movies but at the same time these cast members have such great chemistry with each other that it would feel like a waste not to take advantage of that but at this point it's all speculation we don't know if J.J. Abrams will actually um create a romance out of this or maybe create a romance out of uh Finn and Poe, which was also a big talking point in Force Awakens. So, and who knows if they have time for romance at all, to be fair. Yeah. I I mean, it seems like some big stuff is going on in the galaxy. But part of the reason why, uh, you know, in Force Awakens that I loved is, you know, that uh, Ray and Finn didn't have a kiss. And it wasn't, even though there was kind of like a bond between them, like it didn't seem romantic to me. And Mm -hmm. I felt like that was, you know, it felt like an un-Disney thing to do. Um, yeah. And it's just interesting that everybody wants, you know, the normal movie cliche thing to happen. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they they need a love story in the, the, the middle of this uh, Star War. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I would be happy either way with or without a love story. And, uh, and we, we are kind of getting the beginning of a love story with uh, with um, Finn and Rose. Um, yes. Although we don't know if that's a mutual thing at this point. <laughs> Uh, one of them kissed the other, right? So, yes. um, yeah. So, uh, anyways, let's let's move on to Christian Bale. Uh, he's been giving some interviews recently, and he says he regrets Terminator Salvation. Ben, what do we know? Yes, in an episode of the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, uh, Christian Bale was asked why he ended up taking the role of John Connor in McG's 2009 film Terminator Salvation. And uh, Bale revealed some information that I had never heard before, which is that he turned down the movie three times before he ultimately said yes, and that he ended up taking the gig in part to silence his haters, basically. So the quote was, I said no three times. I thought that franchise... I went, nah, there's no story there. Um, And he picks it up by saying, let's see, uh, it was an unfortunate series of events involving the writer's strike, involving Jonah Nolan, who was able to come on and really start to write a wonderful script. And he then got called away for a prior commitment that he had. It's a great thorn in my side because I wish we could have reinvigorated that franchise. And ultimately during production, you could tell that wasn't happening. It's a great shame. And then he says, there's also a perverse side of me where people were telling me there's no way on God's earth that I should take that role. And I was thinking the same thing. But when people started verbalizing that to me, I started to go, oh, really? All right, well, watch this then. So there was a little bit of that involved in the choice, too. So it definitely seems like he took this role out of spite, like just to prove that he could do it. Um, And I had completely forgotten about the fact that Jonah Nolan was involved uh, with the script in, in those early days. So, you know, um, Bale had worked with Nolan before on both The Prestige and The Dark Knight at that point. So I can totally understand why he would think, okay, I'm going to do this because Jonathan Nolan is on board writing the screenplay and he's a smart guy and has delivered in the past. And I'm sure he'll be able to come up with something, you know, sort of on the fly, even if he doesn't have everything fully worked out right now. He, I can totally understand that, uh, that um, thought process from Bale there. But 
then of course <laughs> the whole thing about taking the role out of spite is like a, a little less defensible in my opinion yeah and and I'm sure he also regrets that tirade that he went on against the cinematographer that went viral. It yeah, yeah. Like, he called yeah. that uh, a great learning lesson for him. So, <laughs> Aww. The, the lesson is do not allow recorders or phones on set. <laughs> that, is, that is the lesson. Uh, let's move on uh, to Marvel and Black Panther. Uh, you know what? You know, I'm excited about Black Panther. I know a lot of people are. But, I, you know, these first films in these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, when you're introducing kind of a, a new character, not that he's being introduced, but, you know, this is, you know, this is the Thor one or the Spider-Man. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, this is the first film. Uh, usually doesn't do that well in comparison to, you know, the later sequels. But it turns out uh, advanced ticket sales are... Uh, are selling more than any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies so far. HD, what do we know? So Black Panther has broken the record for the most advanced tickets sold on Fandango in its first 24 hours, um, besting the previous record holder, Captain America Civil War. So this is a huge... It hasn't even... Uh, gone past its first 24 hours yet but it's already beat all the past mcu movies in pre-sale tickets which is a huge deal and we don't know how indicative this is of its eventual box office uh, opening estimates but it is a good sort of litmus test for how well it'll do um, even though it's opening in february and um, is generally less there are less audiences than in like the may or summer box office is it could potentially be one of the bigger openings for marvel does this surprise either of you no not at all definitely people have been, not. like going crazy for this movie ever since it was first announced like every casting announcement every single addition to this cast like it seems like the like the whole of twitter has just been a flame you know every single time somebody got added to this cast and then let alone you know all the trailers and stuff that have come out people have just been going nuts for this movie so i think this is going to take a lot of people by surprise who are not paying attention but if you've been paying attention uh yeah none of this is surprising See, I always take yeah. a, a film Twitter with a grain of salt because I always f feel like, you know, it's smarter than the average general audiences. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, we want to see this movie with this great ensemble cast and great director. But uh, I'm not sure, you know, Joe Nobody knows half of those people or even I knows think, or has seen Creed. Do you know what I mean? I think it should be pointed out, though, that not only does Black Panther have the benefit of having the built-in Marvel audience, it also has a a huge black audience, which helped propel movies like Get Out and Girls Trip to huge success this past year. And they are definitely treating Black Panther as more than just a comic book movie, but as a bona fide cultural event. So this is a huge movie and one of the most anticipated movies of the year, according to a Fandango survey, um, right after Avengers uh, Infinity War. But it's something that I think a huge portion of um, American audiences who don't usually get catered to are lining up to see and are uh, definitely driving those pre-sale pre tickets. Yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited to see how well this does at the box office. It, uh, I would also point out that it seems like Disney has learned a lot from releasing these Star Wars movies and how to make the on-sale ticket uh, date an event 
Do you know what I mean? Like, they are now, like, having these TV spots during, like, huge sport events announcing the on-sale tickets and making that uh, that moment a big thing, which I don't think was happening before, uh, you know, Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, anyways, uh, it'll be interesting to see how well it does. But let's, let's go to the spoiler room. Uh, we're going to talk about some Star Wars and we're going to talk about Westworld. But we'll, we'll talk about Star Wars first since probably more people have seen Star Wars The Last Jedi than have seen Westworld, which might not be the case, but I would I would assume. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, let's talk about Star Wars. Uh, HT, uh, a new Star Wars comic explains how Rey has force powers, kind of? Yes. So there are some new rules to the Force that were sort of introduced in The Last Jedi that infuriate a lot of longtime fans because it basically suggests that the Force is all around us and that anyone really has access to the Force because it is less a power source than it is like an energy and life source. Um, Luke Skywalker uh, defines it to Rey as the energy between all things, attention, a balance that binds the universe together, rather than something that's exclusively for the Jedi or the Sith to use. And in a new uh, Darth Vader comic written by Charles Soule and drawn by Giuseppe Camoncoli, um, it kind of doubles down on this new de- definition that we are seeing of the Force. Um, and this is a comic book series that is set uh, right after the events of the prequel trilogy um, when um, following Darth Vader and his attempt to with Emperor Palpatine to rid the galaxy of the rest of the Jedi remnants. So here he is fighting Jocasta Nu, who is a former chief librarian of the Jedi Archives, who's one of the few Jedi to survive the purge. Um, So she and and um, Darth Vader having like a battle of philosophies as well as a physical battle. <laughs> and uh, she protests that he and Ember Palpatine are trying to snuff out the light side of the force, saying that it's impossible because, quote, the force is eternal. It cannot be ended. It cannot be stopped. Not so long as life exists. It will find its vessels. It always does. It already has. You know this. There are others waiting out in the galaxy. So these vessels are people who are clearly destined for greatness, such as the Skywalkers, or just ordinary nobodies like Rey, as she calls herself in Last Jedi, because she doesn't really come from a great bloodline or anything. She just happens to have this great knack and intuition with the Force. Or Broom Kid. Or Broom Kid. (laughs) Broom Kid. Yeah, exactly. Anyone can be a vessel for the Force because it is all-encompassing. Yeah, I wanted to use this... uh, Well, before I get into what I wanted to say, Ben, what do you think about this? Um, (laughs) I mean, I I love that aspect of uh, The Last Jedi and how it it sort of um, democratized the Force. I think we've talked about that uh, probably enough on the show with, with my thoughts about that. I don't really want yeah. to bore people with it, but yeah, I love the idea of just like making it a thing that's attainable and accessible to everyone. So yeah, I, I'm all on board for that. Um, right after the last Jedi came out, I, I did talk, uh, give you my criticisms of the last Jedi, but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I don't think I've said this on the podcast is, uh, how the last Jedi kind of makes force awakens a worse movie. And I just wanted to, to – I have this whole theory. I might write it up for the set at some point. But um, but one of the points of this is Ray's powers and her abilities. 
Um, I, uh, I I understand the enthusiasm of Ray being a nobody, and that makes her not a Skywalker, and she's thus not a chosen one, and and anybody could have these powers. That's like a great message to to send out there. Um, but at the same time, I remember when Force Awakens was coming was released. Uh, Max Landis went online and had this whole uh, diatribe about how Ray is the Mary Jane and uh, Mary Sue or Mary Sue. Sorry, not Mary Jane. Mary Sue. And um, and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something I, I liked. I don't think any of us like this whole argument that basically she just had powers and there was no, um, you know, she she was just given these powers with no uh, uh I'm not sure how how you how you define that, but um, like it, she had no uh, conflict in that, and there was no training, and there was no whatever. She just had, it was awesome. Uh, and at the time, I was you know arguing that point that you know obviously she was trained early on in life. Obviously, she was probably part of this uh, of Luke Skywalker's Jedi Academy. Maybe she was a Skywalker, maybe she wasn't, maybe she was just, you know, one of the kids at this Jedi Academy alongside Kylo. Um, it d- didn't have to be that, like, she was from a, a famous bloodline, but uh, she obviously had some training. Uh, but now that, you know, Ryan Johnson has made that not the case, you know, uh, Kylo tells her that uh, she was just, you know, some kid of these uh, uh, traitors that just dumped her on Jakku. Um to me, it kind of makes Force Awakens a worse movie because while I understand uh, Ray could easily swing a lightsaber and wield a lightsaber because she's used to defending herself with a, her bow staff, um, and I understand she you know, did flight simulators, so she had the power to fly the Millennium Falcon, totally makes sense. I totally buy that. But I, it kind of bothers me that she's able to use this uh, Jedi mind trick. And, you know, she, she comes generations after the Jedi have been extinct and no one even knows about the Jedi mind trick. And yet she's able to, you know, convince stormtroopers to, you know, let her go and, and whatnot. And t- to me, at the uh, before, it seemed uh, more reasonable that she had some sort of training at the core. And now that she now that that has seems to be proven not true to me ray seems more like a chosen one than ever before because she's kind of like just badass without any training and even like when she's on octu with luke uh luke gives her you know these three lessons but essentially he's just standing off to the side watching her swing the lightsaber the lessons aren't really that deep i mean they 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 have her looking within herself but it's not training in the the usual sense of her actually learning things about the force and how to use her abilities so i guess what i'm saying the thing that's bothering me is that this choice to make her a nobody actually makes her more a chosen one than ever before because she just was born badass with force abilities and being able to do all this stuff Do, do either of you uh have an argument against this this uh line of of, of thought that I'm going off of. HC. <laughs> Listen, whenever people talk about Ray as a Mary Sue and that whole argument, I like to bring up baby Anakin Skywalker who managed to build a robot butler when he was like five years old and But he was immaculately conceived and was created right. by the force. <laughs> Oh well, okay. I'm just 
No, you're right. And, you know, I don't want to get into the Mary Sue argument of things Mm -hmm. because I don't like that whole thing, that whole concept. I feel like that's just bad. Yeah. I I want to get more into like storyline wise. Well, for me, her abilities never bothered me because I always saw her as a really scrappy orphan who was forced to survive and fend for herself on this desert planet that was filled with you know, traitors and thieves and everything like that. And as for the Jedi mind powers, it was just something that she had observed and then picked up really quickly. And it was something that never really lost me. I just kind of figured that she's talented and maybe that doesn't mean she's a chosen one, but maybe she that means she is uh, especially tuned in with or sensitive to the Force, which I think is fine, like in terms of that whole definition of the force being uh, democratized and being available to everyone. Maybe some people are more sensitive or attuned to it and maybe some aren't. Um, and But anyone can rise above their station. And as for Ray, I think that maybe her circumstance did lead her to sort of be more powerful um, because just living as and growing up as she did, it just required her to be more mature and, and stronger and mentally and physically. So that's kind of my reasoning for it. I never really saw it as she must have had training because I think that there are so many ways that we, there's there's so many previous male protagonists we've seen before who have just picked up on things instantly and we see it as just like a mark of their prowess. But here we have to dig into every tiny little facet of her skill set. And while yes, maybe it does sort of tug at that uh, newly defined um, rules of the force and that idea that she's not special or chosen one. Um, I don't think it's something that loses me as a viewer. You, I think you, that. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, HT, uh, you're kind of selling me a little bit because maybe, maybe you know, growing up on Jakku and you know having to trade, you know, trade all that stuff that she scraps. Maybe she noticed that she had the power of pers- persuasion. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, in that process, but never understood that it was the force. Um, so, so, so maybe, maybe, maybe that is true. Uh, B- Ben, your thoughts? I think HC said, uh, I mean, said it really beautifully right there. Um, for me, uh, just something that, uh, I guess an analogy that has just popped into my head is in sports, there's this concept of being a natural at something, a natural talent, right? Um, I'm wondering if it might be easier to sort of wrap your mind around Peter as like maybe thinking of Daisy Ridley as like, or of Ray specifically, the character of Ray as like the, uh, the best football player in a small town or something, right? Like you, you, uh, you know, bounce around high school, high school, maybe you're playing high school football and there's always just this one person who is like way better than everybody else, um, this person seems, you know, preternaturally gifted. And, and a lot of times um, it, it is just like a natural born talent. Like it's this, you know, sometimes people just simply don't have to work as hard to be as good at, at things as other people do. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that that person is uh, a chosen one or like the greatest in in her field or whatever, because then if you graduate and go on to play, I don't know, college football or something, there are, you know, everyone in that category is equally as talented as you are. So maybe we're just seeing it in a, uh, in a micro sense, you know, like this, 
maybe uh, Ray and, you know, like maybe Broom Kid is an example of that, where, you know, a, a very small hint at that larger world. Maybe we're just seeing this this really dialed in story of Ray, who happens to be the best player in her small town, but then the resistance at large as it forms and, and maybe grows in episode nine could reveal that there are multiple people from all across the galaxy who are just as talented as Ray at using the force, but we just haven't seen their stories told yet. I mean, I love your sports analogy, but I'm wondering like, you know, in your sports analogy, that person needs to be, you know, taught how to play basketball or how That's to play the thing, baseball. Though, is like sometimes and... they don't. Sometimes really? it's just like it's so natural that you and and sure, like for certain specific things, like uh, you know, like, techniques like, and like things levitating like that, but, a bunch of rocks or. But, I, but I think I I think you can you can make the case that just so even if, if even if even if you take Luke and and Ray's interactions with Luke completely out of the picture, which I'm. I would argue that maybe even being in his presence, she could have absorbed some of his knowledge and abilities, and maybe she skimmed through those Jedi books, you know, on on the Millennium Falcon at some point. That's possible. Um, but even even pushing all of that stuff aside, I think just her natural uh, skill set um, could very easily be, you know, maybe she doesn't know that it's called the Jedi mind trick, but I think she could easily come to the conclusion that she has those abilities on her own without having to see somebody else do it or uh, be taught, you know, specifically how to hone that thing. I think, I think like Kylo Ren and, and Star Wars is nothing if not all about balance. She has uh, a raw talent and that's just what we've seen so far. I want to make another comparison to a another sci-fi franchise that similarly dealt with this sort of illusion of the Chosen One uh, story, Blade Runner 2049. So Ryan Gosling's character. Wait, so are, 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 are you going to give spoilers for Blade Runner 2049? Um, uh, possibly, yes. But <laughs> okay. Vague spoilers. <laughs> so, so spoilers, vague spoilers for Blade Runner 2049 coming up. So Ryan Gosling's character, Agent K, um, starts off the film believing he is fully a replicant and nothing else. But then throughout the film, he starts to get inklings that perhaps he is destined for something greater. Perhaps he is this chosen one, this uh, mythical sort of child that everyone is searching for. And in sort of starting to believe that and in searching for his greater purpose and greater destiny he becomes a better person and better better ability and more just um, passionate about the mission that he's on. And even when that is sort of proven to be an illusion at the end, it still doesn't take away the fact that he became, he was so much improved by this belief and that idea that he could be better if that makes sense. I'm going to tie this into Rey in that, you know, so for so much of Force Awakens and Last Jedi, she believed to be someone special. She believed to be um, part of a greater destiny. And that drove her to be perhaps better and try to stretch her limits beyond what maybe she thought she was capable of. But she was always capable of from the beginning. And that's the idea of human will and that being powerful enough to make you skilled and perhaps make you um, a better Jedi master or whatever. So that's the extent of 
that idea that I just had. So I hope that makes sense in some no, way. It, it totally does. When I was watching Blade Runner 2049, you know, a few months before uh, Star Wars came out, I actually was like thinking to myself during the movie, I was like, this could be what Last Jedi is. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seemed like a way they could have gone with the story, but obviously they they did not. Um, it's kind of similar. There are parallels. Similar, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess. I don't know. I I guess. Uh, I guess I wish that Luke Skywalker actually. We actually saw him teaching her something of usefulness, well, <laughs> and not just another... like these vagaries about the Force. <laughs> Another point I want to say is that Luke never completed his training with Yoda either before he went off to rescue Han and Leia and was swaggering at, around acting like he was a Jedi Master already. So That's true. he was never quite skill, skilled either when he faced off with his mortal enemy and Darth and eventual father, Darth Vader. So I think there has never been a point, an emphasis on skill or anything like that in, in Star Wars. It's always been about just reaching yeah, but, for reaching for the stars but at least in a montage they showed yoda training luke yeah. and him well even stuff. even going back to the first time that uh luke holds a lightsaber i think obi-wan you know pulls out that little drone thing that shoots lasers at him and like the second time he is able to deflect the labor the the laser blast with the uh blindfold on so like yeah i guess you could argue that maybe that's because of his chosen one dynasty bloodline or whatever. But, um, you know, even before that's way before he had Yoda training or anything like that. And he was still, you know, exceptionally talented at, uh, at the yeah. ways of the force. I, I, I just, you know, I love this idea of there no being a chosen, you know, Ray's not the chosen one. I just wish that the story reflected that more because I feel like if we were going, if that was the big thing about this trilogy, I, I wish that, you know, she had to struggle and earn it more than we've seen. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I mm-hmm. feel... Uh, it always just kind of came easy to her. Yeah, and mm-hmm. in this movie, she's... I loved her in Force Awakens, but in this movie, it's a lot of her listening to guys talk to her, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of bothering. You know, it's not her doing or being proactive as much. Um, and when she is, she's, you know, running to Kylo or I don't know. It's it just um, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say now. I'm st- starting to sound like Max Landis and that's not my, my intention. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I guess we've said enough. I guess people have probably gotten what we what I was trying to convey. And uh, I think you guys did a good job at uh, uh, arguing otherwise. I think you, you've actually gotten s- some thoughts in my head on, on how that works and and uh, wh- why, how you would explain it. And that's um, another thing, Peter, is like this is only the second entry in this trilogy. So who knows? Maybe, um, you know, maybe Abrams will show something in the third movie that sort of recontextualizes uh, Ray's journey and, and what we've seen and how she fits into the force in a larger way um, and what that particular relationship is like. So it, it's always tough to sort of judge a trilogy when you've only seen two thirds of it, you know. Oh, for sure. And uh, let's get to our last item in the spoiler room. So if you have not seen Westworld Season 2, um, the, I mean, if you have not seen Westworld Season 1, uh, you <laughs> might want to turn this off right now because we're going to be talking about some surprising Westworld Season 2 casting. Is she, should we leave you here or are you, are you okay with sticking around for this? Uh, I'll go. I haven't watched Westworld, but I know everything that happens. But I'll head out. 
<laughs> okay, H.G., where can people find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Okay, so we have uh, some Westworld Season 2 casting, uh, the return of Jimmy Simpson. Ben, what do we know? Yes, so at the Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour, uh, Jimmy Simpson, who was there to promote a, uh, a whole different show, was asked, of course, about Westworld because it was like one of the biggest shows of 2016. And uh, he was asked if he was going to be coming back for season two. And he said, I thought it was already a thing, but now that you're asking me, I'm going to shut up. And then when pressed even further, he said, I mean, yeah, I pop in. So he definitely comes back to play William in Westworld season two. The reason that this is sort of spoilery and, and interesting is because the very end of the first season of Westworld reveals that Jimmy Simpson is playing a younger version of the man in black, the character that's played by Ed Harris. Uh, we know that Ed Harris survived Dolores's robot uprising at the very end of that season because we've seen him in the season two trailer. Uh, and we know that I, I think he was shot. Right, Peter, at the very I, end. I think so. And that, but like just maybe like a shot in the arm or the leg or something, not like a, a, a mortal wound. Um, so we, we had a feeling that the character of William was going to be coming back in season two. But now we know that that Jimmy Simpson's version of William is also going to be coming back. So I guess what that means is we're probably going to see more flashbacks, um, although they won't be uh, as hidden as they or, or obfuscated as they were in the first season, because season one went out of its way. Uh, arguably to its detriment to try to conceal the reveal that uh, that Jimmy Simpson's version of William and the man in black were the same person. But um, also I sort of like what uh, Jacob Hall, who wrote this article for slash film.com. I, I like what he uh, theorizes here in his, in his piece. He suggests that maybe it means that um, Jimmy Simpson could be playing a robot version of, William of like the younger William uh, and how that might sort of rattle Dolores who has uh, obviously had many experiences with uh, with both versions of this character over the years. Yeah, I know in the viral stuff, uh, there's a whole contract you have to sign to go to Westworld in that they do take your DNA and you do give over the rights uh, to your DNA. So it is is conceivable that that could uh, be a storyline. I I mean, I wouldn't put that beyond... um, beyond Jonathan Nolan. I mean, what if they did that and you thought it was a flashback all along and then it's revealed that it's taking place at that time and he's a robot? Yeah. That'd be... I mean, I, I think I think they've said, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, because you're, you're way big of a, a much bigger Westworld fan than I am, but I think they've said that they're not going to try to like trick the audience quite as much because they were impressed with how quickly you know Reddit and all those sites sort of figured things out. I, I think the second season of the show is supposed to have like a different feel to it and not be quite as, um, you know, purposefully mysterious in that way. I mean, that's what they would say if they were going to do it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's a fair point. Fair point. So, uh, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see how he fits in there because I'm wondering, we've kind of seen his storyline, like a young William storyline to its completion. I think, yeah, it, it felt it felt pretty complete to me um, after the first season. So I'm not really sure what going back and revisiting that character at an earlier point in the timeline will add to the story unless it's just because Jimmy Simpson says that he, quote unquote, pops in. So maybe it's just a very, very small appearance, um, hmm. you know, just 
maybe it's like one flashback in one episode or something like that for like a key moment. Uh, but I, yeah, other than that, I'm not really sure. Um, like you said, what you know, what else could be added to seeing him again uh, in that earlier version? I'm very curious of what Westworld season two is going to be. Um, ben, do we know when Westworld season two is going to premiere? They haven't even announced that yet, have they? I think it comes back in the spring, and that's all we know at this point. Spring. Okay, very cool. Uh, ben, where can we find more of your work online? You can track me down uh, at SlashFilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm.com, at SlashFilm on Twitter. Uh, you can find this podcast, SlashFilmDaily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, if you have a question, comment, concern for us, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. Um, please go to uh, iTunes and give us a rating, give us a review. That helps us out quite a bit. Spread the word. Tell your friends, and we will see you tomorrow.